Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and uh, this week we are looking at one of these seeds emerging. Uh, The city of Minneapolis released a draft of the 2023 Climate Equity Plan, and it's looking for feedback and comments on the 2023 Climate Equity Plan. The city of Minneapolis um, says it aims to be one of the most sustainable cities in the world. And in the plan, it expires, it it, it hopes to have 10% of foods in Minneapolis grown or produced in Minneapolis or within 250 miles. So I'm going to repeat that. 10% of food purchased in Minneapolis are grown or produced in Minnesota or within or within 250 miles. So sustainability and producing local foods, those are interwoven. Um, of course, we save the carbon miles. We know that the average food travels over 1,500 miles in America. But local food is just so much more than that. So on today's show, we're going to be talking about how the city can achieve this goal with the East Phillips Indoor Farm. And joining me right now is the president of East Phillips Neighborhood Association, Dean DeVolis. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. And thank you for the interest in our cause. Very much appreciated. Well, and very much appreciate all the activism that has gone behind this. So um, let's tell us a little bit about the East Phillips Indoor Farm. If you had if you had this program right here a whole year, <laughs> I, could, I could entertain you endlessly. But I'll try to keep it for the courtesy of listeners and yourself uh, shorter. The project emerged really 10 years ago. And it emerged out of the neighborhood when they realized the building, which is the Roof Depot building, which is a 230,000 square foot warehouse. Built so people, by, I'm going to stop you right there. Yeah. 230,000 square, square foot. So I heard you guys and others say, say, say basically if the IDS was on, um, was not, was, was lateral. Was and flat, stuff, was flat. It would be about half the size of it. So it's a large building and it's a warehouse building, uh, ceilings eight feet, 18 foot high, built by Sears Roebuck and company in 1946 as part of their distribution network because originally abutted a rail line. And that was its purpose. The thing about Sears, Sears built good buildings. They use what I call 100-year specs, which means they're designed to last 100 years with just normal maintenance. So quality building, most specs are 25 years. Just give an example of how buildings are designed and how they design to age and survive. So when this building became available, a neighbor had said, what should we do with it? And what should we do with the surrounding polluters like Smith Foundry, bituminous roads, so forth, because we want to go to green future. And this is long before the Minneapolis Green Corridor plans and everything else. The neighborhood was very forward thinking. So out and of the meeting... I we, think it's important to say this neighborhood was also um, the victim. It was also nicknamed the Arsenet Triangle, well, so it had a long negative history with pollution. It has. Uh, it's been a victim of multiple issues with pollution, arsenic being one of them, but other major industrialization industrialized uses, the freeway construction, which cut it off essentially, lost a ton of residents. You know, the freeways took out 350 residents. When you have those kind of losses and you have the kind of impact from the traffic and the loss of access and the continued industrialization, it creates a cumulative effect of pollution, economic loss, and so forth. So the area was sort of the recipient of what I call a lot of bad urban planning that's been accumulated for many, many years. And the neighborhood's trying to say, how do we reverse this? How do we go the other way? How do we reclaim our future? And this was all part of the discussions 10 years ago. 
of trying to reduce the amount of pollution, trying to create green industries, trying to create economic opportunity. So out of those means came the idea of creating aquaculture and hydroculture out of this building because the building is, as you mentioned, horizontal. It is large. It is steel and brick construction, so it has a proper strength to it, and it could handle these type of functions. So we organized ourselves. We was able to raise money, and we approached the, off, uh, the owner, uh, which is a gentleman out of New York City, to buy the building. And he was a friendly seller. And he said, yeah, we'll sell it to you. And we came to a price of about $5.7 million. Unfortunately, that's when things started going sideways. The city got wind of it. The city approached the owner and said, you cannot sell to the neighborhood. We're going to take your building. Uh, the owner said, well, uh, I don't wish to, and the city says, we have the right eminent domain. You don't have any choice. So the building was sold uh, to the city of Minneapolis for just short of $7 million. And the city's Minneapolis intent was to tear down the building and use it as a storage yard for diesel trucks, vehicle, gas station, diesel fuel stop elements like that. And that's when the fight really started because we, as they were trying to prevent greater industrialization, greater intensification of use. And their facility has 888 spaces in it. Granted, everyone may not be filled as a vehicle, but the scale is almost scale of one of the parking ramps at the Mall of America. So it's a big, intensive traffic operation with diesel trucks and everything else that's being imported in the neighborhood. So now you're reversing or you're reversing the goals of trying to green the neighborhood, you're intensifying the existing industrialization of the neighborhood by bringing in all the diesel truck traffic, you know, front end loaders, everything else into it. And you're creating a very low possibility of jobs because the jobs that are coming to us would be transferred from other areas. And as you know, most city of Minneapolis employees tend to live outside the city, so there's no net gain for the neighborhood. The land is lost to a use that's not productive. It'll be surrounded by a 14-foot high wall because that's be a security facility. So now you're thinking we gain the pollution, we we don't we lose the economic activity. So you know it gets into all these issues of you know the top of environmental racism, but there's also economic racism where you put non-producing or non-productive uses in neighborhoods that have the least political basis to it. Because you could never imagine a facility like being proposed for Kenwood, for example, or areas like that, because the reaction would be very visceral and so forth, and you can just extrapolate what would happen to it. Yet, East Phillips was a recipient of this. So that's what really geared. And we tried to work out compromises. It's not like we just said, no, can we share the building? Can we do this? Uh, operations or the buildings maintained, you share it, we do our operations, so forth. Are you willing to compromise on vehicle counts? Are you willing to compromise on electrification? You know, all kinds of various functions. But we never came to agreement. There was a mayor's uh, issue that, uh, I should, MOU, I should say that, said it will give you three acres free which is generous, but you have to accept our facility with 800 spaces. And so it became sort of like a devil's negotiation. You know, you take the prize from the devil, 
but you got to live with the ramifications of your decision for the rest of your life and for generations thereafter. So the price was too high on that process. So that's how we ended up where we were because of that decision. As they were vision, and it's still very much live, and it goes back to the food, is that, as you know, hydroponics and aquaponics is a rapidly growing industry. And it's become necessary, and it really got emphasized uh, during the pandemic because the food supply chain started to break down. And distance became an enemy as opposed to a friend. And as you know, Minnesota, historically, most of its agriculture came out of California, southern states, so forth, relied on elements being trucked in. And all the costs, when that started to unravel, you literally start creating uh, food deserts of fresh vegetables, things like that, where winter climates will have issues that come with it. And then on top of it, you have an urban location that doesn't have that direct access either, uh, amplifies that. And so the idea is that if East Phillips can become a center of food production, both hydroponics, which means growing fish indoors, and aquaponics, which means growing crops indoors, now you've created a green industry in the city that provides direct food access literally to people across the street that literally you can walk over, pick up your head of lettuce, <laughs> walk back to your house, and have salad. You can't get it fresher that way. And it's same with food. So there was genius in the community's vision. And remember, this was from 10 years ago. 10 years all, ago was very early. Early, early in this whole food struggle. And I've... I'm going to jump a little bit. Yeah, but go ahead. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, so I, I heard someone say this word, and it actually is in the dictionary, misknow, misknow. So not mistakes, but misknow. And there's so much, so many misknowings about our food system. We thought we could just use chemicals and do this global system, and that doesn't really work well. To relocalize our food system is critical work, and it has all these wonderful benefits, sustainability, equity. And equity is huge, and helping people have agency over the economics. Plus, and, and this is where I think the real knowing comes in, is plus having a relationship with our food and the more-than-human world. I mean, it's, it's about a living economics. So this idea of turning this huge building into a um, – and we're going to talk about all the different yeah. ideas, but into a – don't knock it down. It's a good building and, and use it as a large food incubator. Well, what do you think green? What's the first step? And you, you learned this through LEED and all the other green movements. Keep what you have. Renovate what you have. Work with that. That's the greenest thing you could do from the get-go. If a building can be reused, reuse it. If uh, something can be saved, save it. And that's step one. So when you take a building of that scale out of the system, because remember, there is a shortage of this type of space in Minneapolis. It is in very short supply. So you're taking a very needed resource that is in good condition and destroying it and making it a parking lot. It's a tragic loss of resource building environmental elements. And then you're. We're going to take a break and we're going to come right back. And we're we're talking about the East Phillips Indoor Farm. Ten years at it, but there is there it's is alive. light. There, it's, it's alive. alive. It's alive. Um, you'll be right back. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. 
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, where we plant and nourish the seeds of change. Um, and one of those seeds is emerging. One of the wisdoms of life is emerging. Um, the city, city of Minneapolis, um, in their 2023 climate equity plan, they set out the aspiration that 10% of the foods purchased in Minneapolis are grown here or within 250 miles. Now, the residents in East Phillips Neighborhood Institute um, have been thinking about this for a long time, and we're talking with Dean DeVolis about the um, urban farm in East Phillips Neighborhood. So, so again, this is a huge, huge flat building, um, and you guys have wanted to turn it into an urban farm. You had the funding lined up 10 years ago. This other stuff happened, but Update us. Where are we right here, right now in um, uh, in 2023? So the good news, you know, the old saying, persistence pays. <laughs> and we've been persistent. And you've probably seen the occupation and some of the protests and some of our action. That's just part of it. There is a huge movement of people supporting this that goes beyond what you see visible within the news media and so forth. For example, there is a Finnish delegation coming to Minneapolis in May 17th, 18th, 19th. They heard about this. They want us to present to them. Uh, for example, we just won an award. I even know that was being set in my office. That came from a National Philanthropic uh, Association supporting this. So there's a wide-ranging support for this. And what really helped when we were internalized with the city, we weren't getting anywhere. We were just running into a brick wall of six council members against, plus the mayor, so you had a split council, but the mayor has veto power. And we're making very little progress. Uh, two things that really happened. One, donors kept bringing money into us to keep the legal fight going. I mean, one group gave us 100000 they called me, which is a tremendous amount of money. I mean, the small communities raised close to a million dollars, which is just incredible. First community in Minneapolis has raised that kind of funds. The other factor that happened is the fight got taken to state legislature. We got out of Minneapolis and into a higher power, so to speak. That made a difference. And why it did is the legislature is a key source of funding for Minneapolis. When Minneapolis has budget, they put in requests. Minneapolis, I believe, has a request of $200 million, the state to support uh, the stadium and other elements like that. And the Minneapolis delegation started hearing us and realizing this was a good thing and starting hearing from the constituents within their various districts, like, why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you allowing this to occur? And they started saying, gee, Minneapolis, you keep asking us for something, for money year after year. Um, we need you to give something back. And the back is helping support this project, allowing this group to proceed, allowing it to happen, to let the residents chart their own future, this green future that I've uh, described to you. And so... Finally, it was Anderson Kelleher when we were a joint negotiation between the House Republicans, 
uh, Minneapolis, and Keller was the direct, executive director of Minneapolis Public Works, and they, they also she also had a her media uh, person there, media expert, public relations. And in the Millis negotiation, and we were just firm, she finally said, "We're willing to sell the building." And that was the first time those words were ever spoken. Willing to sell the building. And, and when did they express that? Uh, about two weeks ago. Okay. Two and a half weeks. So this is newsflash. Yeah. This After is, 10 years. Uh, 10 years of <laughs> no, no, and no, and no, and <laughs> this is why it's no, and it should be no, and why aren't you heard my first no? You know, sort of a combination of a variety of no's, some very polite, some more direct. But that was a big revelation. And one of the representatives, uh, House representatives, said, I see a path. I see a path here of solving this issue. And said, I think we'll get to work on helping fund the purchase of the building through the state to allow this project to go forward. So now there is a roadmap being pulled together. And we're in the midst of negotiating and structuring the bill because there's a bill on the House side and a bill on the Senate side uh, for $20 million, uh, respectively, to support this effort. And we're sort of in the midst of working through this process. When that gets pulled together, that's our roadmap to really create the vision and the dream that this project occurs. So where before it was like fight, 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 uh, protest, resist, everything else you can imagine. Now we're selling a point where it's like, now we can start thinking what the project's going to be and what the vision's going to be. And now we're starting to shape the components of it. For example, the aquaculture, agriculture I described as key elements. But uh, Little Earth has this very successful urban farm that they've started. They want to have a portion of it. Uh, Ruhel, who owns Ghani Mahal, as you know from his famous quote, let my building burn for justice, wants to open up an aquaponics facility, 10,000 square feet uh, within building. And then many other cultures do, like the East African community, obviously I mentioned the Native American community, the Latinx community, I want this part of the urban agriculture as components of what it represents. But beyond that, uh, there's a world cafe wants to be created within this thing that would cook and prepare the food that's had little to be grown in the building. A community kitchen would be a function. How do you house the workers that work in this building? So we're looking at creating 30% adjusted median income housing, which is high affordability for people to understand what AMI stands for, and also even a component for housing for the homeless to have that small house of homeless have that uh, work with it. Community space would be work with it, entrepreneurial space would be uh, part of it. And then because the building, as you mentioned, is so big and flat, it will allow us to have the largest, one of the largest solar arrays in Minnesota, 230,000 square feet of solar power. That would support the building entirely underwrite the costs of hydroponics and aquaponics because that industry tends to be energy effective. So it takes that risk out of the factor uh, the factor of running these businesses, thus allows them to succeed very well and brings an income source to the building. And the model we're looking at is a community ownership model, which is a third to be owned by the community, 
and we'd offer shares at people that are at 30 or 20 percent AMI. On that, a third would be owned by the tenants, uh, the idea that they own the real estate being, and a third would be outside investors. So this idea is that we can create community wealth through real estate because one thing that our tax code is tends to favor people on real estate, whether it's a Big house time. or whether it's an apartment building or whatever, it favors those. But if you don't own real estate, the tax code tends to punish you because you have nothing to deduct against. And so you just pay your straight rates with no deductions. Now with this ability, the people that have sort of been renters and have access to it now can start building generational wealth, start determining their own future, start creating their own path to self-determination. So a lot of factors come to this. And the beauty of this, this becomes a very good roadmap for other communities and starts influencing future development sites like Lake Enigalit, i.e. the Kmart site, Upper Harbor, and so forth, of how you spread the opportunity uh, within a community, within the real estate market, which never has existed before in Minneapolis. Because you know the market has been dominated by your large developers like Morrison and Rye and United Property and so forth. Now it could be a thousand small investors, owners, and so forth that can participate in this. And that is an anti-fragile system. That is the right story that we want to go into, that having that agency and, and that local. This is so exciting. Um, and we're going to take a break, and we're going to come right back. We're talking about the East Phillips Indoor Farm with, De- with Dean DeVolis. Um, he is the president of the East Phillips Neighborhood Associate is Institute. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Institute. Okay, uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Hey Jude, don't make it bad Take a sad song and make it better Remember to let her into your heart Then you can start to make it better Make it better. Um, Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of the change. And one way to make it better is to have um, local food, local jobs, a just economy. Um, How do we have equity and sustainability at the same time? And the residents in East Phillips neighborhood got together like 10 years ago, and they came up with this great vision for it. And it looks like after 10 years, the persistence may be paying off. It's still got some challenges. But let's talk about the vision, um, the vision behind the um, East Phillips Indoor Farm. So the key part of the vision, and it, it, as you said, it's really built around because what are two, three incredible human needs? Food speaks for itself, food and water, uh, economic opportunity, and housing. Those are the three basic needs. If you can address those, you've really addressed a lot of the opportunity people need and look for. And that was sort of the main functions that we looked at in putting this project together to allow that inspiration. The reason why we put pick food versus high technology, because as you know, you sort of a big trend, you know, it's a computer company coding this, that, that's sort of the hot thing, technology. The problem with technology, it has this high bar of entry, meaning you have to have a college degree, you have to have a specialty, you have to have that. Well, that's not accessible to everyone. 
But what is accessible is an innate knowledge to grow, to grow crops. People instinctively understand that. It's a knowing. It's a knowing, exactly. And so the reason why I went this route is that because of the knowing, as you've mentioned, it can work and opportunities can be available to all residents of East Phillips, whether you have an advanced degree or whether you've never had the opportunity to go to uh, secondary school or so forth, so that the jobs aren't limited to a specialized few. And that was key in shaping this and putting it together is to get that platform, and food is one of the greatest entry points that allows that to happen. So that was one of the main philosophies to do that and sort of what I call the belief that has driven this. And that's what's driven so far. And the beauty of this, we have companies interested are small, like Ruhal and, um, you know, in terms of uh, Ghani Mahal and Little Earth. But we also have large companies that are organized, like Blue Water Farms, which is a specialty grower in walleye. They're going to grow walleye indoors and have a RAS system that stands for Recirculating Aquaculture System. Basically what that means is the poop from the fish gets collected, the water, brown water, I call it, which is used to fertilize the plants. The plants grow, the plants f- clear the water, they're filtered by running it through their, their internal organics. That clean water is brought back to the fish again, and the cycle repeats itself. So the idea, it's a very environmentally efficient type of process to bring food, and you're delivering green vegetables along with fish on their side. So that's going to be part of the technology of the building. The other thing, because it is grown indoors, we can manage the pollutants because you, because there's a lot of common misconceptions of site. You know, I read the letters to the newspaper that are after articles on this to get educated with the uh, public fields. And a lot of people say, how can you grow food in such a polluted area? How dare you? And it says, we're not growing food in the soil there because unfortunately the soil is contaminated. That's why keeping the building so important because it seals the arsenic that you mentioned below an eight-inch slab. The food is grown in tanks or dirt that is above that slab that we can control its purity and control its process, control the nutrients that aren't proper, control any of the uh, pollution like mercury and stuff because, you know, our fish has a big issue with mercury. By doing this indoors, we've taken all that risk out of the formula, and we've taken the environmental risk out of the formula. So that's why this is informed, because now we're creating safe, fresh food within the neighborhood in which all the neighborhood residents, if they wish, can participate in this, whether it's in terms of growing, distribution, uh, cooking, kitchen, all the aspects around it really give a whole variety of economic opportunities that they can step into wherever they feel like from the end, like I cook great meals, I want to be in the kitchen and deliver, or I want to create the food or work with the fish and the organics in the beginning end of it and the technology to do that. So there's a whole range of opportunities that come along this whole food change method, and that's the beauty of it also. It's not just one job, one type of person. It's a whole variety from getting your hands in the soil to being a distributor and everything in between. So um, so some of the, um, and I, I'm going to go back to that Hey Jude song. I mean, you take a okay. sad song. And so this this um, neighborhood, East Phillips, um, was 
a victim of freeways, like you say, and of um, uh, pollution. And now it's this idea of building something that's regenerative and that offers um, a different economic system, really, one well, based on knowing. Well, here's what's key. A facility like this at that scale could create up to 500 jobs. A big deal. Economically, the neighborhood could create up to $600 million over 10 years. A huge shift. It's a tale of two cities. If the city facility goes in, it may have 20 jobs that are transferred from elsewhere. That's it. That's the end of the economic blessings that occur on it. If the blue with the roof depot buildings developed, as we've just described, it creates a whole string of employment and business opportunities that are endless. That's the tale of two cities. Do you take that acre of land and put it in non-productive economic use, you know, besides all the pollution and all the other background issues you've heard, or you take that seven-acre land and create futures for people and job creation and new food technologies and local growth and local greens and all those elements. It really is a dramatic story which way this goes. And if the city went out, we would have been stealing a huge future out of the neighborhood. I mean, a huge future. This creates something very different. So where we are right now, in, and what are the, um, how can people join you and support you, and where is it at um, this week? So please call the Minneapolis delegation. That's number one. And then both House and Senate, let them know to support the bills. Unfortunately, I don't have the bill's number in front of me, so my apologies. There's a House bill and a Senate bill. Just please support the Roof Depot bill. That's number one. Uh, number two, and I believe this is going to be on May 9th, the city is still moving ahead with approval of this project. And there's going to be a hearing, a public hearing at the Planning Commission about this. Absolutely show up, testify, hell no, this cannot happen. Because part of the idea is we have the legislators supporting us. We need that. But also we need to sort of stop the city of continuing the process of supporting this and changing the zoning because they want to upzone the site to allow the service yard, the expansion of Hiawatha service yard to occur from, I think, an I-1 to an I-2. That's the last thing we want to have happen within the neighborhood because we don't want to pave the way of this happening. So those are two things. And the third part, please donate. Uh, go to our website. We have a new website come out in a few days, which is outstanding. The volunteer effort of this thing is tremendous. Genius is what I'll call it because I work in the private sector in my day job, and I've seen this volunteer effort create something that's equal or better than what I've seen out of what I call the paid professional class. So, you know, kudos to what they pull together. So website, please donate and support us for a nonprofit so you can obviously write it off and all that good stuff. So that helps too because that's what's fueled our efforts, fueled the legal fight, which was able to stop the city, fuel the exposure of this to let the world know of the opportunity of the thing. So reason why we're here is not because of me, it's because of the strength of the community, the dedication and the dedication of the volunteers. I'm simply, let's call it the maitre d' that shows up at the front of a restaurant, but it's really the community that has made this happen and driven it and the volunteer efforts and support, and that's been key. So what can you do? Keep that up because 
all your efforts are starting to show progress. And I can't thank you all enough for that. Well, yeah, we've done a lot of shows. And the one, uh, some of these goals of the indoor farm, save, repurpose, and reuse the buildings. Duh, we want to be a sustainable city. Duh, how to reuse these buildings. So talk again about how much effort might go into reusing that building. I mean, some people, is it... Um, I know it's been vacant now for 10 years, so what what so, needs to happen to make that a possibility? So here's the unfortunate, fortunate part of it. 10 years ago, the building was immediately occupiable. The, the past landlord took very good care of it, and it was stable and ready to move into. Uh, under the city's occupation, I'll use that word, they've let it deteriorate considerably. They put no money into repairing the roof or nothing else. It leaked and and not became not so good, and they cut off the power and heat and everything else. So, with the intent of letting the building rot till they destroyed it. The good news is, what I mentioned in the beginning of this interview is that it was very well built and was able to sustain the lack of care. And. That's what has made this possible because it was primarily steel and brick and concrete. This building can be brought back to life relatively quickly, like within six months. Once we get a new roof on, reinstall heating and air conditioning, connect the power, we're in business because it's basically a wide open warehouse or some administrative office in southwest corner those who can clean out because they first they say let those go to mold and everything else, clean those out and are operating because it's a simple gridded building. I mean, it's a series of columns, 26 feet, steel, thick slab. We can be operable. So that's the thing. The building can be repurposed and repurposed very well for the uses that we've been describing. It's the right fit for the aquaculture, hydroculture industry. So the goals uh, save and repurpose and reuse that wonderful old building, um, create green living ways jobs for the community, uh, second chance job opportunities, yep. some job training, organic aquaponics uh, all year round, um, and also affordable family housing um, at 30%. Yeah. Yeah. And so and the vision was even to have everyone have a small garden along with those affordable housing. Exactly. The more... Precisely. The more people can control their destiny, the better off they are. And if one small piece of crawling destiny is grow your own food, that's a big plus. And so the idea is to give uh, the residents any opportunity they can manage and control their future is the key of this project. And that's why the idea of the community ownership and all those aspects, because everything historically has been top down, as you know. This is what's good for you and so forth. And any of this, it's that the ability of the residents to create, manage, grow, and create their economic uh, future is really the goal of this project and their own decision-making. And that's how to have a healthier community. I mean, it, it really is um, mental health and connection with food and connection with uh, the more-than-human world. So the other visions um, is to have, like, maybe a coffee shop or a world cafe. Yes, and that's key because... Food is social, and that's a key thing people always forget about. And the more social networks you build, the stronger your community is. And, you know, our food system today tends to be isolating. 
and the more home deliveries and things like that, you've even increased that effect. And you've read about the articles on increase of loneliness. The uh, suicide rate has been increasing a steady rate in those articles. Start tripping type. Why is Minnesota suicide rate keep increasing? These are all effects that are occurring out of this. So the idea of these social elements of the cafe, of the community kitchen, of the restaurant, of the market, of the coming together to grow food builds bonds with other people, which tend to strengthen each other and starts going against these trends that I just mentioned. So this is really key on a social level, so, too, and a mental health level yeah, also. Mental. So we're going to need to take another break. We'll be back for our last segment. We're talking with Dean DeVallis. He's with East Phillips Indoor Farm. And you can get more information by going to the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute.org. That's East Phillips Neighborhood Institute.org. There's a land that I... Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. And uh, we um, learned of one of these seeds emerging in the city of Minneapolis draft 2023 climate equity plan. Um, there is the goal of 10% of the food purchased in Minneapolis being grown right here or within 250 miles. So Growing our own food is now part of the climate equity plan. Uh, actually, they're looking for comments on it. That yep. is a draft plan. But this idea of, of having food and us together is, is um, I think it's almost a remembering of an old story. And I, I, I heard someone speak about this word called misknown. And so it's different than mistakes. But when we, when we misknow something, and there's so much about our food system that we have misknown. I mean, we thought we could feed the world with chemical farming, but we're knowing that no planet, no job. And so um, we need an awareness of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, a food system that's more living and more engaged and, and, and how we can sort of rise up. And that's why this vision of this indoor East Phillips farm is just so beautiful. I love it. And, um, Thank you. And so let's talk again um, for those who might be joining us late. Um, uh, this has been a 10-year struggle, <laughs> but now the city has agreed to sell you the building. And um, there is a proposal right now in the state legislature to offer you money um, to get this Correct. created. So um, so is that a fair update? That's actually a better update than I gave. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, stated. And that's key to know is that. In 10 years, we're getting there. And and that's what I want everyone to know on this, that we've been fighting for 10 years. Now we get a chance to build, and that's the difference. So where we're heading now is talking about what this project would look like. So we're drafting DJ architectures, drafting architectural plans right now to show the public of what physically this vision is going to look like. We drafted an MOU to present to the mayor, which gives a uh, roadmap to how this is going to purchase. We've created a new website to start talking about the future aspects of this project. We have investors that have come forward that we'll be announcing shortly that are willing to come up to, uh, up to $10 million to support this. So now we're getting into the phase of the positive building of actually creating 
and implementing the vision. And that's a key change from where we were. And it's that introduction gave that we're finally getting traction via the legislature, which I can't thank enough for them stepping in on this. And again, like I mentioned before, the tremendous community support and volunteers that have made this vision possible. All that is now getting us to, to a point where we can now look at how this is going to be implemented as opposed to how we can prevent the city from putting in the Hiawatha expansion. So that's been a major sea change that's really been positive. And so let's talk a little bit more about um, the vision. And again, this is just a lot of building space and it's flat building. And even though it's been kept um, vacant for a long time now, for 10 years, um, it can be reclaimed um, and it makes good space for affordable living food systems. Yeah, and here's an example, because we're thinking of, you know, there's two ways, and I want you to sort of think back. During World War II, there was this thing called Victory Gardens. And what was significant about that during the war effort, because so much food had to go overseas, uh, the government encouraged everyone to grow their own garden, grow their own food to take the pressure off the local system so the food could be supplied to the war effort. That was very significant because... All the neighborhoods gathered behind these victory gardens and started growing their own food, and that created a very strong social network and a purpose that spread beyond just the sake of just showing up and living every day. So that was a significant moment. This is somewhat the same model because while we have large entities like Blue Water Farms that wants to claim 80,000 square feet within the building, we have hundreds of smaller entrepreneurs, food growers, aquaponics, so forth, that says, give me 5,000 square feet, give me 10,000 square feet to grow my specialty lettuce or specialty herbs, to grow a specialty type of fish, and so forth. That's culturally based, because you imagine all the cultures of the world and each of their specific food desires and needs. All these want to grow food related to their culture, related to their background, related to history that cannot be found in what I call the mass production U.S. system. Because U.S. system provides a very narrow range of food choices. This allows the expansion into all these unique culture-based foods and herbs and spices and fish and everything that now can be brought back and, to the, and the table again. the people who create and, and, and create and produce the food are not servants, but they're, they're, they have their own agency. It's, They'll be owners. It's their destiny. It's their destiny. It's their owners. Well, wonderful conversation. Uh, Dean DeVolops, he's the president of the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute and uh, East Phillips Indoor Farm. Ten years of struggle, but hopefully, hopefully. Well, thank you for having us after ten years. <laughs> Very much <laughs> appreciated. A couple times. <laughs> what do you say? Persistence pays <laughs> yeah, off? exactly. <laughs> so you've been listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota.